Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, good morning again. Uh, I just noticed this. I, I apologize in advance to Allison back there. Most of my notes are changed. I've revised this sermon like three times. So um, this is my fault, but I'm going to change the title. If you're a title person, you can write this down. Uh, it's called Renewed, colon, uh, bold, Heart Deep and Just Because. Renewed, Heart Deep and Just Because. All right. Well, again, as you're coming back in, if you're new to North Cross, welcome. Um, you've been a part of like a lot of beautiful things. This is what, what a morning. Um, and also, if you're, uh, we'd also like to know that, frankly, that you're part of us. So if you're virtual with us, would you email us? Matt gave you some of the e- email addresses there earlier. If you're in person, feel free to swing by the, the welcome table and leave your name uh, and way to contact you if you'd like. Grab a mug, some sort of parting gift. We'd love to do that for you. If you're not exactly new here and you kind of still don't quite feel plugged in, that's okay. Um, There's life groups that we just encourage you to jump into. Um, You can try out more than one. It's never a bad time to try one out. And so we just encourage you that. Usually they happen on Sunday nights. Well, uh, thank you for letting me get away last Sunday. I wasn't here. I don't know if you didn't notice or noticed. It's okay. Um, I want to especially thank Ben Chapman, who just ran point on a lot of things. Last Sunday, I appreciate that. And also Tim Mascara, who filled in for me in the pulpit, and all the volunteers um, who stepped into my absence, and really the old volunteers that have just been doing this week in and week out of helping make this church work and grow and be the church. So thank you for that. Um, as promised, a few weeks ago, I gave this just trailer teaser that we are going to go back to the book of Ephesians, and we're right back into it. Okay, we're right back in the middle of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's a book in the New Testament section of the, the Bible, and we began it last August 2021, and the hope is to get it done by August 2022. Uh, we took a couple breaks for Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter, but we're right back into it, and uh, we hope to finish. And so if you can kind of, if you can stretch your minds and remember backwards, we've said the book of Ephesians is God's I have a dream speech. It is God's vision for the church, the church as it is, and the church as it will become, even one day, someday, when Jesus comes again. This means that despite our best and worst efforts, despite our loudest and softest opinions about the church, the church is meant to look, and it's meant to sound, and it's meant even to smell like Jesus, whose birth, life, death, and resurrection are, in the words of Eugene Peterson, a miracle that didn't look like a miracle, a miracle in the form of the powerless, the vulnerable, and the unimportant. So this is why our sermon series is titled, 
Again, if you're a titles person, great. I'm helping you out today. Jesus and his church belonging to an ordinary looking miracle. What does it mean to belong to an ordinary looking miracle? And this week's passage that Holly just read is building on this greater vision of the church. God has invested the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. God has centered his glorious resurrection power in this ordinary looking miracle, the church. And God has done this so that we can be a worldwide mission together. And the mission, whether we choose to accept that mission or not, is this. The church, we, here in a warehouse on a Sunday, we, the church, are here to show the watching world why Jesus matters at all. Do you realize that? What difference does it make that Jesus saves and transforms lives? Where's the proof of it? Ephesians chapter 4 answers. The proof of that is in the church. Believe it or not, yes, certainly in miniature, but here resides God's glory for all the world. But you're asking some questions. Wait, Sid, what? How come Christians don't act like that then? Right? How come? How can we as Christians act like that then? And we're right in the thick of our passage, aren't we? Chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. But before I get ahead of myself as usual, and before we go there and we get that, would you pray with me for our time together in God's words this morning to us? Father, thank you for these words. They're precious. And I pray that we would hold them. We would hold them tight, but we'd also hold them um, with patience. You know what we've endured this week, and you know the sore spots that this passage can hit. And I pray that you would help us to rest in what you're up to. But also, would you challenge us a bit? Would you stir us up to think about why we're on this planet? Would you help us to think about why individuals in this room are in this room? And why uh, and what this, the individuals in this room mean outside of this room? And I pray that you would be doing that, because you're God, and we're not. And we ask you because we can't do it on our own. We ask you to show up. We ask you to move in these words so that you may move our souls and spirits. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just start with the easiest question. And it's not that easy. What would you most like to change about someone you despise? What would you most like to change about someone you despise? Or let's just say someone you don't like right now. What would you change about them? I'll give you a moment or two to stew on that one. You know, maybe uh, picture that person and zero in on a characteristic that really bothers you. Second question. What would you most like to change about someone you love? What would you most like to change about someone you love? could be a spouse or a significant other. could be a child. It could be a sibling. could be a friend. What would you change about them? Third, and perhaps the easiest question, but also maybe the hardest question. Actually, I'd say the hardest question. What would you like to most change about yourself? What would you most like to change about yourself? What tendency or habit would you like to change? What thing would you most like to change about that person you most love and you most despise? You, me, ourselves. In the story of the Wizard of Oz, that third question is the question that drives the plot. 
It's what paves the yellow brick road all the way to the Emerald City and the wonderful wizard himself. And that question, what would you change about you, also just simply defines the main characters in that story, doesn't it? Think about it. Dorothy wants to be home. She wants to be at home. A desire that is universal, isn't it? But also it's far bigger than a farmhouse in Kansas, let's be honest. The scarecrow. He wants a brain. He wants to be able to be less bored by himself. He wants to be able to understand and explain the world better. And as he sings, perhaps if I had those things, I'd deserve you if only I had a brain. The tin man, he wants a heart, right? He wants to be tender and gentle and awfully sentimental just to register emotion and really feel the part if I only had a heart. And finally, the lion wants courage. He wants to change his habits, never more be scared of rabbits, and be a lion, not a mouse, if I only had the nerve. Look, even if what we want is slightly different than those characters, we can all relate to those characters and their quest for change, can't we? Right? It's an emotion, it's a thought, it's a behavior you can't stop yourself from doing. It's a feeling, it's a habit, it's a personal trait you can't quite motivate to start regularly. And if we're honest, at times we're desperate for answers, right? Even if it means fighting wicked witches and fighting off flying monkeys. We want to find someone, we want to find something that's sure to get a brain, a heart, a home, the nerve, or whatever else it is that we're not that you and I are looking for. And maybe the bigger question is not what would you change? It's not a what question. Maybe the bigger question is a how question. How do you, how do I change for the better? And that is the question that Paul is so thoughtfully and passionately addressing in our passage this morning. How do we change? How do we change? And also, then then afterwards, what do we change from? And what do we change into? What do we change from and what do we change into? These are the questions that that Paul is stirring up. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, Paul is pushing on some sore spots for sure. But also he's leaving us with a lot of hope. He's doing this and teaching with three stages to it. First stage, verses 17 through 19, right? We're going to see from what are we to change? Answer, we're to change from how we are by nature or what Paul painfully describes as the natural state we're born in, or in my words, born that way. Second stage, verses 20 through 23, how do we change? Paul's thoughtful answer, we change by the Holy Spirit, by remembering who we are now, or in my own words, the engines of change. That's our second point. Third and final stage, Paul's lesson, verse 24, What are we to change into? Paul's passionate answer, we change into who we are in God, like him. Or in, my own words again, live this way. So we're looking at three points in verses 17 through 24 in in the order that Paul presents them. First, born this way. Second, or that way, excuse me. Born that way. Second, the engines of change. Third, live this way. That outline is projected behind me, but also is in your e-bulletin. And 
really, I want to start with verses 17 through 19, and they are prickly, aren't they? They're a prickly description of the natural human condition, what it means to be alive without Jesus' intervention. So let's start there. I use that word prickly on purpose because I think Paul is being prickly on purpose, isn't he? If you read this passage, doesn't it make you feel a little ouchy? Like, look, let's look at the very intentional way that Paul begins. He knows he's being prickly. Look at how he begins his verses, 17 through 19. Now I say this, or I decree, now I decree this, and testify in the Lord. That is a loaded way to start a description. (laughs) Think about what he's doing there. What is he setting the stage for? And really the question is, why is Paul being so serious there? Why is he laying it on thick in the beginning of verse 17? It's because Paul's about to say something that's not optional. He's about to say something that there's a need to change. And Paul's going to say this in a way that is offensive and shocking enough that his audience is going to see their and our need to change too. Paul tells his first century audience in Ephesus something that still applies to us in 21st century America. The takeaway big picture of Paul's message is the rest of verse 17, isn't it? You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do and the futility of their minds. Ouch. Ouch. Paul begins with a negative, a what to change from, a command, a command that he only expands on, right? Don't walk. Don't continue to live like the Gentiles. Gentiles are those who are non-Jewish, but really those are people that did not grow up with God's promises and the covenant. And so the question becomes, how do they walk in the futility of their minds? Or another way of saying that is without hope. They walk without hope. And then really verses 18 through 19 go on to bluntly diagnose the hopelessness of living without God in this world. They are alienated from the life of God because their hearts are hardened by stubborn self-sufficiency. The average person knows about God, right? But chooses to go it alone. Here she says, that's nice, but I've got this. I can take care of myself. Thanks, but no thanks, God. I'm I'm really good. I'm good. And according to verse 18, this darkens the understanding. You see, ignorance does not lead to stubbornness. Stubbornness leads to ignorance. In the words of Blaise Pascal, the heart has reasons that reason does not know. The heart has reasons that reason does not know. The heart leads the mind, right? And verse 19 goes on to say that the hardness of heart that leads to the darkness of mind, this process culminates in a callousness to life. Or as the message translation helpfully puts it, they've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch, not only with God, but with reality itself. They've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch, not only with God, they've lost touch with reality itself. Feeling no pain, people's hands and feet, their actions have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Or in the words of pastor and commentator John John Stott, He says it this way, having lost all sensitivity, people lose all self-control, right? Having lost all sensitivity, people lose all self-control. This is sometimes called, kind of in popular psychology, it's sometimes called the hedonist dilemma or the hedonic treadmill. What the heck do I mean by that? A hedonist is someone who pursues pleasure, but a pleasure indulged in 
satisfies us less and less. And so we need another scoop of ice cream, a bigger, (laughs) sorry, Karen, a bigger adrenaline fix hobby. More time on the internet with, a nut with more graphic images. A larger salary with a newer phone and a newer car. A that much higher social position. We need to receive every text from the friend group. We need more information about what's really going on in the neighborhood. Who's in and who's out of the friend circle. And so, in so many things, in so many parts of our lives, we feel this deeply. And it's really epitomized by a rock anthem from the 1960s. I can't get no, 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 satisfaction, okay? That's pretty, I mean, I wish I had spandex and was leaping around the stage. I don't wish that, but that's what it would feel like to see that. Okay, Sir Mick Jagger. All right, in Paul's words, it also just simply means walking in the futility of our minds. That's what he's saying. I can't get no satisfaction. But come on, Paul, why spend so much time, so much ink on the futility and the hardness, all of the darkness and dissatisfaction? What gives? Well, as I said before, Paul really wants us to take seriously the awful aspects of our human condition. Without supernatural intervention, we're born, we grow up, and we are adulting totally depraved. Not as depraved as we could be, not absolutely depraved by God's common kindness, but change is needed, and that's what Paul's underlining. And this is because, as verses 17 through 19 point out, sin is not just bad. Sin is bad for you and for the other people around you. And look, I need to be the kind of preacher that talks about what the Bible talks about. And we need to get, the Bible talks about honestly about life. And that's hard especially if you don't have faith in Jesus. But we've got to talk about that. And I want you to wrestle with that. But Paul's really building towards something, not just rubbing our noses in the bad news, isn't he? After all, look, he's primarily addressing this letter to the Christians, believers who no longer have to walk in this way. Because you see, Paul's doing this thing. He's like every good physician, every good doctor. He knows the better the diagnosis, the better the remedy. He's taught us in detail, not just what went wrong, but how exactly it went wrong. Did you notice that? It started with our hearts, our natures, what the Bible calls the fountain or steering wheel of our lives. And then from the heart, sin moved to our minds, our thought centers. And from our minds, the evil moved out into our hands and feet, what we do, our behaviors. And this means how it goes right must work in the same way. Renewal must begin with the heart, move to the mind, and finally out into the actions of our hands and our feet. And so we find ourselves in verses 20 through 23, the territory of our second point this morning, how we change, or the two engines of change. So what's the remedy, Paul? How do we really deeply and permanently change? You'll notice almost all of us don't actually start where Ephesians chapter 4 starts, do we? When we want to change, think about New Year's, whenever, name your, name your thing. You'll notice almost all of us don't actually start there. We start with our hands and our feet, don't we? What we do, our behaviors and our habits. 
And this most often looks like willpower, applying more and more willpower. In the words of Mick Jagger, again, because I try and I try and I try and I try, I can't get no satisfaction, right? He's in it. He understands. And this is what he's talking about. And this is what Paul's talking about. And for some of us, some of the time, this actually does work. I want to acknowledge people can lose weight. People can yell less when they're angry. People do quit smoking and quit pornography. But what happens when we try and that doesn't work? That's what I'm asking. What happens when it doesn't work? <laughs> what happens when we just, do we just try harder? Just double down? Sometimes that works, but oftentimes it doesn't. And if fight and determination don't work, well, there's always giving up, right? You know, quietly quitting it all, freezing into denial, fleeing into self-despair. And can I just say this? I mean, maybe this is, the, I'm assuming this is the common human condition. When it comes to deep, lasting spiritual change, willpower is just not enough. It isn't. You're like me, and you can't make the spiritual changes you want on your own either. I can't simply screw up enough of my self-effort and choose God's will over my own all the time, every day. I just can't. I can't do that once and for all, forevermore, amen. That's just not my life. And you can tell when we reach for the ineffective change by willpower. You know why? Because it sounds like if-then statements. You notice that? Let me apply this by using some examples and borrowing heavily from another Christian minister. Change by willpower, growth by better behavior alone, sounds like this. If you follow all the rules of the Bible, then God will love you and you'll be happy. Good luck. If you lose 20 pounds, then you'll be worthy to be loved. If you raise your children with the right traditional values, then they'll be good Christian adults. If you live a perfectly righteous, green, eco lifestyle, then you'll be worthy of taking up space on this planet. If you work hard, then you're definitely going to get meaningful work that pays well and at least a starter home. If you never have a racist or sexist thought, then you're worthy of calling other people out on their racism and sexism. And on and on and so forth and so forth, right? But this same minister goes on to point out that true heart-level change comes by a different route, doesn't it? The Christian gospel. The gospel's not an if-then proposition. It's more like the Wizard of Oz. The gospel is a because, 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 because proposition. Because God is our creator. Because we rebelled against the idea of being created human beings and insist on trying to be God for ourselves. Because God will not be deterred, God went so far as to hang from a cross that we built and said, forgive them, they know not what they do. And because Jesus Christ defeated even death and the grave and rose on the third day in triumph, you and I are a new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Amen. I could end the sermon there, but I won't. 
And this is what fairy tales like the Wizard of Oz are after, aren't they? This is what they get that we don't get. The problem is this is why we continue to tell them over and over again. We copy them, we paste them, and we make them into movies and TV shows and musicals. They, first of all, these fairy tales, first of all, argue with who we think we are. They argue with our identities, don't they? You see, all good fairy tales ask, are you sure you understand who you actually are? Is she really just an ugly duckling? Is he merely a beast or a frog and not a prince? Is he only a boy who lives under a staircase with a strange lightning bolt-shaped scar on his forehead? Hypothetically. And we see this in The Wizard of Oz, don't we? Dorothy, the scarecrow, the tin man, the lion endure many dangers and finally make it to the Emerald City and to the wonderful Wizard of Oz. But then the curtain falls down, thanks to Toto, and it turns out that the wizard is just a man from Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> and so looking to the next guru, the next friend, the next celebrity influencer or celebrity pastor fails yet again, or just pastor for that matter, fails yet again. Doesn't it? And yet that ordinary old man in Oz does do something important for the scarecrow, for the tin man, and for the lion. He convinces them that they already possess what they always wanted, doesn't he? They have the brain. They have the heart. They have the courage that they so desperately thought they needed. The not-so-wizardly wizard reminds them of who they actually are. And this is what Paul, our ordinary old man, is doing in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 22. This is what Christ, what is it that Christ teaches? What is it the truth in Jesus that we've already heard? By faith in Jesus Christ, remember, we are no longer the old self. We're no longer the old nature, the former heart and mind. No, no, no. We have been transformed. We've been renewed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit, verse 23. And these are the two great engines of change, like two sides of the same coin, like the blades, the two blades on the same set of scissors that can sometimes cut us to the quick. The first great engine of change is what God does, the Holy Spirit, who by God's grace and your faith, this person has quietly and powerfully made you into a new creation. It's a subtle but important difference from the Wizard of Oz that I need to point out, right? We weren't born this way, this renewed way, with the heart and brain and courage that we need. They were given to us by the Holy Spirit. And this work of the Spirit is so quiet sometimes, isn't it? It's so deep and it's so subtle that God has to tell, that God through Paul has to tell us to live into it, to remember who we aren't, the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and corrupt through deceitful desires. That's not who you are anymore, he's saying. Instead, we remember who we actually are, a new self created after the image and likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This is who we are now. And remembering, remembering what is what we do, and that's the second great engine of change in our lives. 
But before we close by a way too brief third point, I'm already apologizing. Um, I just want to discuss a little bit of what it means to live into this new self together. I want to pause and point out something that might just be so obvious at this point, but it's really worth underlining. Paul is saying, put off and put on different selves. Do you notice that? Put on and put off different selves, old and new natures, old and new hearts, because this is where we've got to start. Just like in the fairy tales, transformation begins in Ephesians chapter four with our natures. And only then, after our hearts and minds have been changed, will our thoughts and behavior follow course and change too. This means, in the word of a friend of mine, Les Newsom, Christianity is a big identity issue through and through. Just one big identity issue, through and through. And so any investment you make in what it means to be a Christian is going to radically change how you live. And all of a sudden, sin is not something that you do that's a bad no-no. Sin is so much bigger. Sin can be defined as building your identity on anything other than God. That's Soren Kierkegaard's definition, theologian. Sin is building your identity on anything other than God. And therefore, it's so important to self-identify primarily as Christian above anything and everything else in our lives. Jesus is calling you to believe you are in Jesus, and he is in you so very much that your worth and your significance and your value, your very identity comes from him, chiefly if not alone. And so the things that we say and that we do follow, they don't lead us. We talk about Christian things, or better, we say things in a Christian way. We act like Christians with our money and with our time. Look, our weekly calendars should look different than our neighbor who's not a Christian. Our yearly budgets should also look different. And this is really the, all our third and final point, verse 24, are trying to say. It's just this. When we put on Christ, we live, we speak, and we act differently in a countercultural way, a way that is after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And really the rest of what we're going to do in chapter 4 and the weeks following explores what exactly righteousness and holiness look like in our daily lives. And just consider that a big trailer, teaser to the next sermon next Sunday. We'll talk about that more. Um, but, and really, maybe, it's, if you're feel, maybe that's an encouragement if you're feeling so moved just to keep reading past this passage this afternoon. Just see what his answers are and how he gets there. But I think it's worth pointing out that true righteousness and holiness, living according to God's law of love, counting God and others as more significant, living like God, right? Godliness is what God created us to do. <laughs> Godliness is what salvation redesigned or renewed us for. God has actually made it, believe it or not, more blessed to give than receive. Crazy. He's by the renewing of our hearts and our minds, when we act rightly and wholly, we soar in our souls and find our truest selves 
among God's greatest joys. And so the question of holiness is not, can I get away with it? (laughs) It's not, do I have to? Or why should I? The question, the better question about the Christian life is this. Why in the world would I want to live any other way? When I'm finally free not to sin, when I'm finally free to enjoy the good life, why would I want to return to all that? And at the end of the day, at the end of this passage, this is what God is trying to get us to believe. Because you see, we grow and we change for the better, not first by trying harder and then giving up. You and I grow and we change for the better by praying for the Spirit to work in and through us. Let's start there. But let's not stop there. Let's keep going and believe more and more in what Jesus has accomplished and what he has promised for us, that you and I are not the old self anymore. You are different. You are new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, don't you at least want this to be true of you? Doesn't you want this to be true for you, right? Maybe start with the desires of your heart before we rush into judging thoughts and behaviors. Just a thought. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I've got two thoughts for you and for me. Two very different ways to live. You can think, the first way is this. You can think, if I only had a brain, if I only had a heart, if I only had courage, or if I only felt at home in this world or this body. And you can cry out, oh, the Christian life, it's so impossible. God is so demanding. And I do this. That's why I'm being sassy. And you could toss with the wind, hung up in your thoughts. You can stay stubbornly stuck in a feeling. You can wring your hands, afraid of the world around you. Or you could choose to remember. I, I of all people, am committed to Christ. And he, Jesus, is committed to me. I have a brain. I have a heart. I have courage. They're his. And I have an eternal home with him. I am his and he is mine. And he will never, no never, no never forsake. I'm not stupid. I'm not insensitive. I'm not afraid. That's not how I have to live. I can be that way, but that's not who I am. I can be smart and sensitive and nervy. Why? Because, 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 because of all the wonderful things he, the Lord Jesus Christ, does. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words to us. Thank you for the opportunity to stew in them. And they're just challenging, but they're so good. And help us just to start with wanting to want to change. And would you lead us by the hearts? 
but the feelings and the thoughts and desires, the hands and the feet, would you just lead us to you? We ask this in relationship. Would you make a relationship for us if we don't know you? Would you embolden our relationship if we do? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.